It's the Blue Vote Cafe, a little bit wonkish, a whole lot of fun. I'm Dave Schellenberg along with Rachel Quickster for the co-chairs for Democrats Abroad in Canada's capital of Ottawa. Hello, Rachel. Hi, David. I'm not going to ask how you are because I know you're just recovering from a a dreaded disease over the weekend. Well, I think I'm I'm not fully recovered. <laughs> I'm, I'm still in the middle of it. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, and, and I think the biggest question of all this is, does an expired COVID test still count? How accurate is an expired COVID test? <laughs> right. Because and I how took, accurate? I took three yeah. expired COVID tests and I don't have COVID according to them. So I don't know what that means, but I'm just going to stay home yeah. for a little while longer. I think that's smart, and I'm I'm sorry you've been sick, and I hope you feel better quickly. Oh, thank you. <laughs> At least the sun is coming out in Ottawa. Indeed, finally. The sense that spring might be around the corner is beginning to make itself felt. <laughs> Although we never had winter, but okay, fine. I know, I know. We've, we've had a very, very mild, not really deserving of the word, winter. No, not at all. Nope. Uh, before we uh, launch, I just want to tell people who are hearing us now in many new and exciting different ways that if you want to access the whole library of pod episodes, go to bluevotecafe.com where you can click to play our most recent episode or click on the Spotify logo to find our entire library. And there's a lot of wonderful gems amongst our previous episodes. Excellent. Who's with us today, Rachel? Well, today we have a real treat, and I'm going to let him tell us why we're talking to him. But his name is the Reverend Harcourt Kleinfelter, and we are delighted to welcome him. Harky, thank you so much for joining us in the cafe. I'm very honored to be on this program, this podcast. I think we're honored to have you. Why don't we start by, tell? why don't you tell us where in the world you are? I am in the Netherlands about two hours from Amsterdam. For people who know something about the Netherlands, I'm living where the province of Overijssel, Rente, and Friesland come together uh-huh. in a, ta- a small town called Steinweikervold. And translated, that is the woods around Stone City. Um, it's a small town with about uh, a thousand people. The people still wear wooden shoes occasionally. They're very handy in gardening. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah, it is a very uh, nice place to live. Uh, it's in a nature area, so we're we're there. But it is. It takes us two hours to get to um, Amsterdam, The Hague, or Rotterdam, and that is uh, some frustrating because when I was living closer to that part of the um, to um, <clears throat> to Amsterdam, and, and then uh, uh, I, I could be there in, in forty-five minutes. But uh, here in the north, I have to take a whole day off just <laughs> just to go to an hour meeting. Oh, so, no. <laughs> oh, no, that's very inconvenient. <laughs> but tell us what took you to the Netherlands. What brought me to the Netherlands is sitting next to me here. <laughs> that is Annalise Coltman's, new Annalise Kleinfelder. 
Um, when I was working with uh, Dr. King, um, then um, in the office was a volunteer who was staying on the street behind in the Mennonite house. The Mennonites had at that time an exchange program, um, and um, he said there's this girl from Holland who has just come, and next week is her birthday. Aww. And he said, in Holland, birthdays are very important. Um, and uh, so uh, we had a picnic together, and uh, that was a begin of a romance. And uh, so eventually uh, that resulted in the fact that uh, uh, I would uh, come to Holland to, to be able to get married so we could stay together. Right. Um, my wife's uh, second language is also Dutch because, as I say here in Holland, she's also a, uh, a foreigner <sighs> because she, she's Frisian and speaks her native language is Frisian. Ah. Friesland. Is this northwest province of Holland, and it was an independent country at the time that America was uh, started, and um, it was the first country to recognize the independence of the United States. Oh, wow! Um, they live in Canada. No, I know you live in Canada. And I will tell you a very nice story. Uh -huh. uh, there was two um, Americans, and they were talking about uh, riding around in the backwoods of Maine. And they were one fellow was talking about how important the American Revolution was, and uh, the shots found uh, heard around the world, and so forth. And right, they kept on talking. They went in this through the dirt roads, and they went to this little town and um, bought some groceries and came out. And he said to them, um, what did you think about the people in the town? Oh, they were very friendly um, and, and you know, very helpful. And he said, well, did you ever feel they, they were a bit afraid? No, why in the world would they be afraid? Well, we... Uh, across the border into Canada, and they fought on the revolution on the other side. <laughs> yes, there's a whole different perspective on that yeah. war, depending on which side of the border you are. <laughs> yeah, that makes, that makes a big difference. In, it does. In, in general, um, Canada has much more, um, <clears throat> much more freedom and uh, Certainly, uh, your prime minister has a completely different attitude toward refugees than, unfortunately, in America and most of Europe. So um, this is uh, some of the things. So in any case, that is one uh, story of the relationship being between the two countries. Right, right. But let's come back to your story. Tell me first where you grew up. 
I grew up in Glenridge, New Jersey, ah. a small town um, on, uh, uh, on the other side of the great river that divides America, mm-hmm. not the Mississippi, but the Hudson River. <laughs> I grew up in, as I say, in this town in Jersey. Uh-huh. I could see out my bedroom window the buildings in Manhattan. You could and, see Manhattan from your kitchen window. <laughs> yeah. So, now uh, yeah, it was a very uh, progressive town sandwiched between two other towns. And uh, that's where I grew up. Yeah. All right. And then, I mean, one reason we want to talk to you is because of someone you alluded to a little earlier, but we hadn't actually said yeah. what you... <laughs> yeah, I thought so, about that. Yeah, so tell Maybe us... You <laughs> I mean, it's it's fine to tease the listeners with a little bit of, you know, could it be that Dr. King? So, yeah. yes, tell us, tell us your story of your connection with the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I had followed Dr. King when I was um, a teenager um, and on television, and I had always wanted to meet him. I was deeply impressed by him. And um, I um, uh, (laughs) so um, I had studied a year in England, and when I came back, I studied at uh, the Divinity School of Yale University in Uh Connecticut. And there in the dormitory was a fellow student who had studied in Oxford and was a member of Dr. King's church. And um, he took me to my first uh, civil rights meeting when Dr. King came to Connecticut to Bridgeport, and uh, the atmosphere at this mass meeting was so uh, inspiring, and the music particularly, the atmosphere Mm. was much more religious than the theological school. Wow. And there were so many people in the audience, we couldn't get in. Wow. So we had to go backstage and stand in the wings backstage. And when Dr. Kitten came in, he walked right by the mayor and the other very important people and went straight over to my roommate and said, Homer, how are you doing in your study in Greek? And I was so surprised. Wow. This world-famous person, and he's more concerned about a fellow parishioner in his church, that he is the mayor of a large city. Wow. And then I heard a warmed-up version of I Have a Dream, which I had missed uh, in uh, when it was spoken on the march in Washington. Right. So that was my first meeting with Dr. King. <laughs> uh, now, now, um, Uh, how it further went Uh, Dr. King the next year received the 
Nobel Peace Prize. Right. And then in uh, the spring of 1965, he began the campaign to get the right to vote for Afro-Americans in the in the, in the, in the South. Uh, in theory, everyone had the right to vote yeah. uh, since the end of the Civil War, but they had used literacy tests and yeah. many other ways to keep uh, the African Americans um, off the, the to to prevent them from be, being able to even register to vote. Right. So Dr. King began that campaign, and um, at one point he called for people to come um, to Selma, and then um, one of the volunteers who had come was uh, Reverend James Reed from Boston. Uh -huh. and he came out of a black cafe, and he was clubbed in the head and uh, ended up in coma. And for some reason, a little article uh, about this caught my eye. And a couple of days later, he died. So I went to a memorial service for him, and they had a connection over the telephone to uh, Selma. And there was a minister there, and he said, there's been a crucifixion here, and we need people for a social resurrection. And I had the feeling deep in my heart, now is the time that I have to go. So the next day, I think I prayed all night in the chapel. Mm -hmm. I took two other people and drove 15,000 uh, miles to Selma. And uh, that was... Why begin? Wow. So did that mean leaving your studies, or had you finished at Yale at that point? Okay, that, at that point, when I went there, it was during the spring vacation. Oh, I see. What I did, I brought with me a portable tape recorder uh -huh. that I had brought back from England when I had studied there. And I started getting... Um, many newsworthy events that the media missed. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, and so um, in those days, uh, a band recorder uh, was like a, a video recorder 30 years ago. Right. It was very unusual. And when Dr. King came to uh, Selma, I went to him, and he said, I have news about Homer, and uh, and I asked him, what should I do with the recordings? He said, yeah, try and get them on the radio and television stations. Wow. So I ended up uh, sending all the recordings of the newsworthy events and Dr. King's speeches at that time, and uh, marched with them into Montgomery and recorded that. Wow. And after the march, uh, there was another volunteer who had public relations uh, experience, and the t two of us would 
uh, make recordings. And after the march, we interviewed about 10 people who had marched all the way. Wow. And, and one of the uh, uh, marchers, uh, I'll tell you more about it, made an yeah. extremely de a deep impression on me. And uh, we made a, a, a sample radio program called Sounds from Selma. So mm. that was my begin. And what further went, I think, I'll give you a chance to ask some questions. Oh, it sounds like you were a lot of these different events. You mentioned Selma and Montgomery, and you were recording. So was it, were you traveling with Dr. King? No, not at that point. Uh -huh. um, the, no. Um, after, the, um, after the vacation, um, well, I went back to Yale Divinity School. Mm -hmm. And and then uh, in the summer, during the summer vacation, um, Dr. King's organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, SCLC, right. Right. started a voter registration program called the, the, summer, the summer Community Organizing and Political Education Program, SCOPE. Mm -hmm. and about 300 students came from um, mostly the north, of course, and um, they had Bayard Rusted as the person that um, uh, was responsible for the training program. He was the grandfather of the civil rights movement. In, e in any case, um, I made all the recordings and, uh, at that point, and uh, and work to make uh, uh, in the public relations department to get the news out. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the summer, they asked me to officially join the staff as um, assistant director of public relations and media director for SCLC. Oh, wow. And Dr. King asked Yale for an internship. So that is how I began um, working with Dr. King. So I knew Dr. King as my employer, the minister of the church where I went on Sundays, and as a personal friend. Amazing. I mean, I, I want to know what it, what it was like to be in his presence. I want to know what you remember about him. Now, Dr. King was a person who saw you not for what you were or even what you are now, but what you could be in the future. Wow. And tried to inspire you to reach that goal. And Dr. King uh, lived in the ghetto because he said, I want to be remembered every day as I drive to the office for whom I'm working. Wow. Um, he uh, literally treated the garbage collector in the same way as the mayor. Anybody could go to him after the church service, and um, he would come, and there were staff members and had problems, and 
they would they would come and knock on the door in the middle of the, in the in the evening or even in the night, and Doctor King would come out and counsel them. Wow. He, uh, and um, so I was um, deeply impressed by him. Um, he had a good sense of humor, hmm. and uh, I can tell you one. Uh, he really lived what he preached, and I found his personal life just as inspiring as his public life. Wow. It sounded like you had a, a story related to one of those observations yeah, to okay. share. Yeah. At one point, um, Mrs. King called the office, and the office was on the other side of Atlanta, uh-huh. and um she called the office and asked me to come to her, their house to fix the family tape recorder. Mm. So I went there and uh, then came to the door and knocked on the door and the, the kids came to the door and opened the door. There was no burglar alarm. The only safety provision was the bedroom was the back of the house because in Birmingham there had been a bomb that had gone off on the front porch. Yeah. Uh, so I went into the house. The living room was quite bare. There was a small statue of Gandhi on the table. His Nobel Peace Prize was on the mantelpiece. The mm. rest was. 23 awards and so forth were in the closet in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a painting, a life-size painting of a, of a black woman looking in a mirror. Mm-hmm. And the reflection in the mirror was the same, except the woman in the mirror was white. Ah. So, so it got late, and Mrs. King said, Harcourt, won't you stay for dinner? So I said, no, I don't want to cause you any trouble. No, she says, and Dr. King is, he says, Martin uh, is always bringing people unexpectedly to eat. So I always have extra food in the house. It's no trouble at all. And I said, well, if that's the case, I'd really love to stay. (laughs) Wonderful. We went into the kitchen and sat down on the kitchen table. And then Dr. King came in late as usual. (laughs) And when he came in, I said to him, Dr. King, I don't feel worthy enough to sit at the same table with you. Mm. Dr. King said, now, Harcourt, you make it necessary for me to make a long sermon about how all men are equal. (laughs) So that was Dr. King in a nutshell. That's lovely. What a nice story. So how long did you work in that position? You You said he had turned it into an internship from Yale? on your behalf so you were partly working while you as you worked for him you were continuing to earn your school credits now the internship uh, was extended a second year 
Uh-huh. And um, so, um, so having worked with him for um, two years, um, and and then um, he asked Annalise and I to come to dinner. Um, oh, by the way, uh, so um, Annie said to us, uh, Harcourt, you need to go back and finish your last year of your theological education. Mm. And that was the last thing I wanted to do at that point. I'm sure. I just gotten the permission um, a bit earlier to edit Dr. King's sermons and speeches and to do, and to make them suitable for radio programs uh-huh. that being sent out over uh, 200 uh, uh, radio stations and uh, continued, in fact, for over 20 years. Yeah. So, um, some are still are. And some are still are. Yeah, yeah. some are still are. And um, so at that point, the last thing I wanted to do was go back and study because I thought what I was doing was much more important and certainly more exciting. Right. So I don't know whether it was the fact that he knew me so good uh, because he said, if you don't do it, you never will. And of it was the fact that he had the feeling his time was getting very short. Um, Before he died, the last time he gave flowers to his wife, he gave for the first time artificial flowers. Oh, my goodness. uh, Yeah. So um, Annalise and I went uh, reluctantly back to Yale, and I did my uh, thesis on the, the church as a movement and not an institution. Uh-huh. And uh, following the history of the underground churches uh, throughout uh, history and you know, all the way to the present time, and I used um, SCLC as a, an example of the church as a movement at that time. So... Uh, that's how I ended up uh, being back in Yale. Right. And then I'm reading between the lines here, but was that, were you at back at Yale when he was assassinated? Yes, I was. Oh, how devastating. Um, my colleague, Bill Stein, continued editing the um, programs for radio programs um, when I went back to Yale. And he called me up in February, and he said, "Um, I have this sermon from Dr. King where he talks about what he once said at his funeral. Mm. And I said, well, Dr. King has said something like that earlier before. And uh, he said, no, this time it's different. And I didn't think anything more. And uh, then uh, we were eating dinner, and uh, the day after 
we were able to get one of the inner staff men, the executive staff members, um, Jim Bevel, to come to speak at uh, in New Haven, in the university, and also on the for the Divinity School against the war in Vietnam. Right. And uh, we were talking about that, and uh, talking about the fact that uh, Dr. King had a great fear of flying, mm-hmm. and uh, it was so great, he would not fly in the same plane with his wife, which I can understand because they wanted to have one parent over. Yeah. But uh, at one point he had to fly into some little town in Mississippi and a, a Piper Cub, and Dr. King says, there's only one pilot. Yeah. Well, what do you do if the pilot has uh, a heart attack? Well, that's just tough. So he hired another pilot to go with him. <laughs> Oh, no. So we were talking about this. <laughs> and then it was dinner time. And suddenly one of the students burst into the room and said, Dr. King has been shot. And we turned on the news and got the news and um, immediately watched uh, all three broadcasting networks that were there at that time. And... Uh, so we decided that uh, we would go as quickly as possible to Atlanta, mm-hmm. and I was responsible for the coverage of the funeral of Dr. King for the media. Right. And that's a story in itself, because Mrs. King did not want any television coverage. So we finally talked her into having one cameraman in the back of the church. Mm -hmm. And I was able to get the cameraman I'd seen risk his life more than once to get the news out. And that was the person who recorded the march in Montgomery that began the bus boycott, the first march uh, for Rosa Parks. So, Ah. So that is... Uh, my involvement with the, the funeral, and um, Bill Stein, as I said, called me about the fact that Dr. King had made this, in fact, his last sermon. And uh, I, he said, I'll bring a shortened version of what he once said at the funeral. So that was good. And I worked all night trying to get a connection between the room and uh, the in the back where we had the band recorder and right. to run the wire to the amplifier in the church uh. and that was under the pulpit it was a oh. big tube amplifier oh. and when dr king would preach he began with notes but at some point he would put his foot up on this amplifier and <laughs> back and start preaching uh, extemporaneously. Right. So I ran this wire, but it called and took me all night to do it. And I didn't have time to test it because people were coming into the church. Oh, so, my Lord. Okay. So, yeah. And Bill Stein was, wasn't there with the tape. And it was oh. getting later and later. But there were thousands and thousands of people outside 
uh, fighting to try to get into the church. They couldn't get them in, in the front door, and eventually they got them in, in through the fire escape. Oh, my God. Yeah, and so in in the service, um, it was said to uh, Mrs. King uh, has requested that this recording of what Dr. King wanted to say at his funeral be played. So I pushed, and we pushed the button, <laughs> and there was nothing but silence. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I had an idea that the problem uh, was I hadn't turned up the volume control on the amplifier enough. Right. So I crawled behind the... Um, flowers that were on the oh, chancel wow. on my hands and knees so you wouldn't see me on television. <laughs> down the aisle past um, Jacqueline Kennedy and um, others. Oh, my God. People, yeah. And <laughs> Mrs. King sat in the, something like the fourth row, and I went to her and I said, there's a technical problem. We think we can fix it. Would you like it later in the service? And if so, when? So she's, she says, yes, I would like you to try again and told me when. So I crawled back on my hands and knees again <laughs> and, and now I climbed up into um, behind the pulpit and uh, turned on the switch and then the words came out. If anybody is there on the day I have to meet my maker, tell them I don't want a long eulogy. <laughs> don't mention my Nobel Peace Prize or all the other prizes. Tell them all saying, I tried to love and serve humanity. I tried to be right on the war question. I only tried to serve Mm -hmm. uh, and so forth and so on. Yeah. So that was the story of the my getting the news to the whole world wow. of what Dr. King said in his sermon. Wow. And if That's... you want to know that sermon, it is called the Drum Major, the Drum Major for Justice, uh, and uh, that's. So, anyway, that's that's the story that uh, of the, my involvement with the funeral. Wow, that's quite a story. So, at this point, you had a whole library of tapes, I imagine. Yeah, there's one sad story. Oh no! At one point, after Doctor King had been killed, um, they made a three-hour-long documentary over his life, and it was called Montgomery to Memphis. It was made by a famous filmmaker at that time, Ely Landau. Mm -hmm. And uh, I dumped all the tapes that were necessary to make the um, documentary, a documentary that was played in its full version, only one time, one 
night in America, all of America, and never again. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, shorter versions you could get in those days on uh, on film, and later uh, you kind of now parts of it uh, you can get uh, on uh, DVDs. And uh, so that is uh, the uh, story of uh, the uh, getting the, the story of... Uh, Dr. King was the funeral. Right. But what, so what happened to the longer version of the documentary? Oh, yeah. I was going to finish the story. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Let me just finish the sad story. Yeah. Yeah. In order to do that, I had to dub all these tapes. And I could do that in my spare time at night in the studio from the block radio station that was upstairs from the SCLC office. And I could do it two ways. I could do it high speed, uh, twice the speed, mm -hmm. with two recorders, one to play it, one to record it. Mm -hmm. Or I could do it at half the speed with an extra recorder for myself. Mm -hmm. Made the wrong decision. <laughs> Because I decided I wanted at that point to work only one week at night uh, and not two weeks. So I made the mistake of not making a copy for myself. Uh -huh. And what was, what was going on at that point in my mind was I worked with the tapes every day, editing in, into radio programs. And uh, so they were always at hand. Mm -hmm. And then uh, when I went uh, back to Yale, the uh, tapes uh, were put in um, in lockers or something, and people didn't know where they were. And, oh, no. Uh, yeah, just uh, uh, a big, big problem. So uh, that was one of the, the sad stories. So, uh, fortunately... So they were, yeah. yeah. Go ahead, you were going to say fortunately. Yeah. Um, the Dutch, one of the Dutch television stations um, made an hour-long documentary over uh, Dr. King and I and Annalise, and uh, we went back to, to uh, where Dr. King had had been and made this documentary. And at one point, we went in this hotel room and uh, sat there and he played this band recorder. And here was the tape of this girl in Selma that I thought had been lost to oh. uh, to, uh, to history. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. So uh, that was the, the big discovery and the story, as I say, is so in, so important. And that was one of the good things. And we've been able to find some of the other tapes that I have thought were lost, that were all the time in my attic. So, oh, so you had some with you? I had I had some tapes that I had made at other points. Uh -huh. uh, for instance, the tape I made when I was only a volunteer. 
right. uh, for uh, SCLC. So um, I even had to buy back uh, some of the recordings oh. <laughs> because I had no <laughs> copies of it. Right. So, uh, kind of like uh, Jose buying back this his wife from slavery, yeah. <laughs> but so that so when you left initially to go back and finish your studies, you left some behind and they basically got scattered and some were lost and some have since been found? Most of them, there's collections of them, yeah, some of the, the radio programs are mm-hmm. in the Emory Library, fortunately. Right. But there's many others. What happened to I don't know. Wow. Wow. Um, you were saying earlier, I think it was in one of the, after one of the, or during one of the early marches when you were, maybe when you were still a volunteer, you then subsequently interviewed 10 people who'd been on the march. And you said there was somebody you wanted to tell us more about? Yeah. Yeah. When the Selma march um, finally left after two other tries, um, they had the protection of the army for the whole length of the march. But in one county halfway between Selma and Montgomery, Lowndes County, there were any, the army felt they could, it was so dangerous, they could not protect more than 300 hand-picked people. Oh my goodness! And the wow. rest were bust around Lowndes County. Um, Lowndes County was where the most lynchings in America were. Uh, by the way, there's almost a thousand people who have been lynched and never one conviction. Wow. So, and this is also the place where, after the march, uh, a, a volunteer woman, Viola Luizzo, was. Uh, shot by the Ku Klux Klan when she was bringing people back from the march to Selma. Oh, my. Okay. Yeah. But, um, so she talks about Lowndes County. I didn't go prepared to march. I had planned to go all the way, but I wasn't sure they were going to be able to take me because I heard that they had took all the names. And I didn't take anything but my coat. So that night I had to sleep cold and the heaters went out and the wind and everything was real terrible. And so I stayed woke all night that night by the little gas burner they had outside. And the next day we marched and marched. It rained. That's the day we really had to walk hard. All that rain, I didn't get a cold. The next day, which was Tuesday, we had to... Yeah, that's the day you had to pick them up and put them down Mm -hmm. (laughs) on sisters and everything. Oh, boy, I'm telling you, I said, I know they're going to try something if they have to wait till we come back. And I said, Lord, I said, you know, I know these people in Lowndes County. And I said, all I want you to do is take care of me and give me more strength to walk fast through this stretch. <laughs> I mean, I prayed that prayer all the way through there. I hadn't had any water all day because if we stopped, we had to run to catch up, and I didn't want to have to catch up, you know. And I wanted to be credited for walking the whole way, so I just did without water. So I didn't have any water in two days. And my tongue swelled up. <laughs> the next day, uh, the nurse was out there that waited on me. And she came and she said, Bill girl, are you going to march today? I said, I sure am. She said, well, all those blisters, I said, they're not hurting. only hurt when I stopped. And you stayed out there all the time? All the time. Every camp we were in, I slept in it. How did you feel when you marched up the street to the Capitol? 
my feet were hurting so bad. Mm -hmm. And when I had the flag carrying one of the biggest one out there, I felt so happy I didn't know what to do. <laughs> Dr. King, I think he's the greatest thing that happened. Really, it's just like heaven. And I'll go anywhere he tell me to go, really. With blisters, sore, sore head, anything. You know, I couldn't hardly read while I was out there. I fainted, I passed out and everything, but I ended up going on ahead. What do you feel the march is accomplished? We're 50 years from where we started when this voter registration started, really, in Selma. 50 years. Because people can walk around and not afraid. If someone get killed, that still doesn't stop them. But I didn't walk 50 miles in vain. Do you feel that people will be afraid to register to vote? Well, I don't think they should be afraid because, after all, they've been killing Negroes all the time. Nothing been done about it. They do find out who killed them now. This has been a big improvement. If you excuse me for the slang, mm -hmm. it's just a nigga dead. How do you feel about the people that came down the summer from the north? Oh, I think they're so sweet, and they try to be so helpful, and they're really a big help. Just having them here to participate for security is enough for me. Did it change your feelings towards white people, knowing the people from I mean, I never hated the white people. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's some good in everybody. And, uh, I mean, if they were a Christian, they couldn't hurt anyone. Because, I mean, if you have a heart and you believe in God, you can also believe in a lot of other things that you don't see, too. And I don't judge a person by the color of his skin. Do you think this is going to change the white community's attitude? Well, I don't think it would happen very fast. It's, it's becoming to happen very slow, but it will be sure. <laughs> well, uh, for one reason, they're afraid. They had a hold over us so long. Mm -hmm. They just feel like it really belonged to them and them only. So that's the problem, really. They think they're giving up their freedom, the white man's way of living. That's what it is. What do you feel will happen now here in some? Well, only thing I can say that the Negro have to keep going on because I know these people can't always stay down here with us, but I believe there always will be some coming all the time. Well, I can't speak for many people. I can only speak for myself. I'm not afraid. I mean, I have to die one day. I should die for a purpose rather than nothing. And I think this is a good reason for that. She was on her way to the third civil rights memorial service for a civil rights worker in less than one month. Oh, my Lord. Have you told us her name? We never know her name. Oh. When we went back to the document to make the documentary. Uh, we went into the black cafe there in Selma, and uh, we brought the band recording of her and played it. And there have been a number of people who were old enough to remember the girl. And they, uh, they weren't certain who it was, but the person they think it was had died. So I don't, we don't know her name. Mm. But yeah, she's the uh, like the unknown soldiers. She is uh, my the model of the unknown, a freedom fighter. Mm -hmm. A voice from the time for sure. Yeah. Wow, what a story, Harky. Thank you. Now, I have a something like less than one minute 
interview I made with Dr. King when he came to Selma's. My very first interview with Dr. King. I'm from Yale Divinity School. Mark, oh, yeah. well, I'd like to bring good news about Homer McCall. Oh, Homer, yes. Uh, he's doing all right? Yeah, he got out of um, the hospital about three weeks ago. He was home for an hour, and then he was on the way home uh, to his folks uh, by the bus. So he's doing okay now. And he, well, I'm happy to hear that. You know, I feel such right. a sense of guilt because Homer is a very dear friend and uh, I have been so busy that I didn't have time and a chance to really drop by to see him. I had hoped to do that, but uh, I've been out of the country once or twice and other things mm-hmm. and I just haven't been in touch with him for several weeks. So I'm glad to know he's doing, doing well. Well, he expects to return in the fall to the Divinity School. Oh, good. Oh, wow. And, um, after the march was over, we had the problem that there were the march began with five thousand people and ended up with I know something like seventy thousand people. Yeah. But the people who had left their cars in Selma to march uh-huh. right. had to get back. <laughs> uh, there was very little public transportation, certainly not enough for five thousand people. So <laughs> So we 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 did several things. We hired cars, and, and we could take uh, some a maximum of maybe five people uh, back. But then you had to drive an hour to sell them, and then uh, drop the people off and drive uh-huh. an hour back. Right. Uh, and so uh, Jose Williams, the the uh, uh, the head of the field staff uh, and one of the two people on the famous Bloody Sunday March um, said, uh, go get some flat bed, flat bed trucks. I hired some black flat bed trucks. <laughs> and when they got there, they, they have wooden sidings on them. And mm-hmm. Jose said, take the wooden sidings off. People said, you're crazy. If you do that, they'll fall off and get killed. He says, if you leave them on, they'll get killed. He says, why? Because what happens with people, they stand up and lean on these wooden sidings. And then if you go through a sharp turn, all that weight of the people will break the wooden sidings off and they'll fall on the ground. If you leave them off, they'll be scared to death. Mm-hmm. And they'll all sit in the middle and hold each other tight. Ah. And, then, and then as the clam starts shooting, they can go in every direction instead of having to climb over the wooden sidings. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> That's the kind of logic that makes the march possible. Right. So wow. after the march, um, the, the, the U.S. Army left. They went home. And... Uh, so we had all these people busing them back. And we had a temporary office in a hotel around the corner from the uh, capital. And then uh, it was in a storefront with a glass front and no back exit. You had to, could only get in from the, from the street side. And uh, as it was getting late and, uh, yeah, you you had some police uh, officers and had FBI people 
you could always spot them because they had uh, uh, hats on. Nobody had else had hats in those days. <laughs> and, and then uh, we got this telephone call. This is Jose Williams calling from uh, Stelman from the NCLC office. There's been another unfortunate incident on this march. Another unfortunate incident has happened as uh, the results of our march today, I'm sure. Uh, a young lady from Michigan that came down to participate in the demonstration, uh, Ms. LaRusa, Viola LaRusa, I was riding along with one of our field workers, uh, Leroy Moden, returning back to Selma, Alabama for the mask meeting after a very successful march today. And Leroy reported that a car drove up from behind them. They were on a two-lane highway in Lowndes County just before you get to Dallas County. And the car drove up beside them and slowed its speed down to about their speed. And then he heard sound like something hit the door. The lady slumped over the wheel and a foot bashed the gas. And he was able to hold the car on to the shoulders of the road after he turned off the switch key. He said the lady slumped and then he saw blood every place and he jumped. Well, at first he int intended to get out of the car and try to stop for help, but he saw the same car go down the street and turn around. And then when it turned around, it came back and he was frightened and fell down into the floor of the car and they shined the light over in the car, but they never did get out of their car. Then they took off down the road. And he said, obviously, they must have seen him through some light or something move around because after they got down the road, they stopped their car again. And he said some car, was, some oncoming car was coming, and they took off. He got along beside the road and hailed, and no one would stop. But I can understand the fear in people's lives in Lowndes County, Alabama. And he said finally he just had to run. He had almost to Selma, Alabama before he could get some help. The coroner has pronounced the lady as being dead. So we started sending that message out to the radio stations. Mm -hmm. And the FBI man came and said, we've got the message that uh, the Klan is planning to attack the office. And so uh, one of the stations got this message. You know, they're, they're, they think the plan, Klan will attack the office. Clunk. <laughs> so uh, we left. Um, but that was the story. Um Later, it was came out that the four men's and one of them was a spy for the FBI. And wow. so that is uh, the story of the uh, another death that was on the march from uh, Selma to Montgomery. Oh, I'm, it just makes me wonder in the work that you were doing when you were there, how much was there a sense of danger present? Every time you marched, you yes. didn't know if you're going to come back again. Right. Uh, well, for sure on the and, marches. What about in the office and in, in the then, the press work you were doing? Uh, the, uh, uh, in the uh, office, uh, the only security was that Dr. King's office was in a room where there were four exits. Ah. Um, that was the, the only uh, 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 precaution. Um, wow. We, we, 
we didn't live with fear. Fear was is 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 the key to violence. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, most violence comes out of fear. Um, um, and better said, anxiety. Now, in the Dutch language, we don't make a distinction between fear and anxiety. Hmm. Um, just like in French, um, the difference between uh, love is not always clear. Mm-hmm. And um, so what I do to, to tell you what the, what, what the difference is, if a lion comes into the room and goes, <laughs> that's fear. Uh-huh. And fear can save your life because you then get all this adrenaline in your blood and your body reacts and you're in a state to run or of uh, bite. Right. Fight or flight. If you read in the paper that a lion escaped from the circus on the other side of town and you start thinking, oh, oh, the lion could get here in a half an hour. I don't have a gun. Uh, What do I do? Uh, Maybe I can put some chairs behind the door. Oh, what do I do? He could get here in, 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 in a very short time. And then you hear in the, in the hallway, meow, oh, the lion. That's anxiety. Right. And politicians love anxiety. Yeah, you're right. Because this is the mentality where they play upon the anxieties of people yeah. and look for scapegoats. Now, um, so the fear um, is the most devastating thing. And we weren't worried about spies because we knew the FBI would find out anyhow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't worry. Google will find out anyway. <laughs> Everything I do. <laughs> it might as well be public. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, we didn't. We didn't have uh, security measures. So we we did have some nonviolent techniques mm-hmm. to be able to uh, mm-hmm. try to stop people who wanted to use violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, we lost just as many people on our staff uh, to, um, to automobile accidents mm. as to being murdered. Wow! So. Um, and uh, there are two, um, yeah, clergymen fall into two categories those that say you shouldn't tempt the Lord and you drive very carefully, and the other, the other, the other side is, um, um, they, uh, is that uh, a very reckless driver, and uh, Dr. King uh, fitted into the last category. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the most poignant things you've mentioned is the the fact that Dr. King gave Mrs. King artificial flowers the last time he gave her flowers. And I, I just wanted to come back to that because you just touched on it and you mentioned it as a, I guess, an intimation that he didn't have much time left. I just wondered if you had 
Any more to say about that? Uh, no, it, it, uh, I, I read about it in the uh, our biography, I think. Uh, ah, okay. That, right. uh, Dr. King, one of his associates, said, um, didn't seem to be concerned about who would be his successor. Mm-hmm. Officially, his friend Ralph Abernathy mm-hmm. um, was the person who became the head of uh, SCLC. Right. And uh, the problem was, as a companion and uh, a friend, he was a good leader, but he did not have the educational background that Dr. King had. Dr. King Uh was uh, a combination of the beautiful poetic uh, symbolic language in the uh, spirituals, particularly, and, and they understood the symbolism of uh, the language uh, in the, the Old Testament mm-hmm. much better than many uh, theologians in higher education. And uh, for instance, um, did you know that the spirituals were also used not only to inspire people and to give hope, but it was a secret form of coding? Absolutely. You knew that? I did know that, yes. Oh, okay. To, to guide people to the north and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. they would sing. And they, they realized that when they were talking about Moses and Pharaoh, that Pharaoh was the owner of the plantation mm-hmm. and when they were working in the fields and the, he was the owner of the plantation was sitting on the veranda they would sing go down moses mm-hmm. go down to egypt's land in other words get down and hide mm-hmm. and if he was back in the house and had too many mint juleps <laughs> then they were saying, steal away to Jesus. Steal away. Now is the coast clear. And uh, wade in the water. Wade in the water. God's got into trouble. Walk through the, um, <clears throat> walk through the rivers, and then the bloodhounds can't follow you. Mm-hmm. So, and they also use quilts. Uh, yes. They're famous for their quilts. Yes. Okay. Um, so that was the one side from Dr. King. And on the other side, he had the, an earned doctorate degree from one of the best uh, um, schools from Boston University. So he had both sides. And so mm-hmm. uh, this made it possible. The problem was with Ralph, he would tell him, uh, you're speaking at a university, you can't go more than 40 minutes. Well, now an hour was... Still, he was still going after an hour. That's oh. <laughs> but um, any case, um, Dr. King didn't seem to be concerned about his um, successor. And, um, and the reason you can find in this last sermon uh, called uh, a drum major, a drum major for justice, right? Uh, There he talks about the disciples are talking to Jesus in the last 
evening of his life, and they and they say to him, "Well, when you get into power, uh, would you, we would like to be on your right and left hand, uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs and uh, Minister of Internal Affairs, is the equivalent to that." And and what uh, uh, Jesus said is. Uh, that's not for me to give. If you want to be the leader, then you need to uh, be willing to pick up your cross and be the least and serve the the the, the very lowest of mm -hmm. uh, humanity mm -hmm. and. Um, it is uh, on God, in fact, uh, given to be as a leader. And then he does something very interesting in this sermon. Because, uh, and he says, um, most, uh, he talks about all the misuse of, of um, power of this instinct. He calls this instinct to be a leader, the drum major, the leader mm -hmm. of the band. And and then he says something very in wonderful, unusual. He says it's not wrong to want to be a leader. Question is, what kind of leader do you want to be? Mm. And do you want to be this great person on the, on a white horse, or do you want to? to be a servant leader. Um, and so uh, this is this is the question uh, of being uh, what kind of leader? And he says, uh, you can be great by being the leader that serves not himself or herself, but all of humanity. And that it's it's a sudden turn, and then he goes on to to talk about further uh, uh, what uh, it means to be a real servant leader. Mm -hmm. So I, I just say that. Uh, so when people ask me who was the successor of Dr. King, I say formally, what was the the president of SCLC, the first was Ralph. But um, you can keep the memory alive of anyone, particularly famous people, by what, doing one of three things. Mm -hmm. With the Christian church, the, the movement was kept alive by the institutional church, which had formal leadership, and the leadership was passed on in, a, in the form of a sort of monarchy. The, the pope was the successor, and to this day it is succession of, of popes. Mm -hmm. That's one way you can keep it alive. Uh, the problem is that through time, uh, every institution can become 
corrupt, results in even end something 180 degrees of what the original message was. Right. And the other problem, the other way is the scripture. And uh, that has been the Protestant approach. The problem is the scripture, the meaning of the words change in the in time, and there are, we have to keep making new versions, new mm. translations. Mm. So that's the second way you can keep it alive. And the third way is, and that is the Protestant way, the third way, uh, and, and that is the, the spirit. The, uh, that is the way of the Quakers. That is the way of movements that have most well, no formal leadership or structure. So if I make the comparison from the, um, the uh, successor from Dr. King, I would have said at the time he was killed, perhaps Cesar Chavez, the leader of the Farm Workers Union, the agricultural workers, was perhaps most in, in, in that spirit. Mm -hmm. I would have said, uh, uh, and I'm, of course, SCLC was that institutional form, and the King Institute was the work to collect all the works of Dr. King's writings and so mm -hmm. forth has been uh, the third way. Mm -hmm. So I'm uh, I'm most concerned with my background as my thesis and the idea of those who keep alive the spirit. And so uh, they killed the leader. They killed the dreamer, mm -hmm. but they never killed the dream. Right. And that dream will go on with those that have the same spirit, the spirit of love. That is the way the movement will go on. Mm -hmm. We all can't be a, a Martin Luther King. But no. we all can be a Rosa Parks. And was it need for Rosa Parks who refused to stand up and give her seat to a white man? Mm -hmm. You probably never have heard of Martin Luther King. And, and I wouldn't probably be here on this podcast. <laughs> Had she not done that. Yeah. And I mean, telling the stories is part of part of this third way that you're talking about and telling the stories. Yeah. That's typical. Yeah. yeah. And we so appreciate your joining us today to tell these stories. It just, it's been an amazing, amazing conversation. Thank you for sharing all this. One thing I didn't talk about, uh -huh. in fact, the most important was the idea of nonviolence. Dr. King said, that nonviolence is not the obedience to a commandment, thou shalt not kill, but it is an obedience to the admission to love your enemy. Now, Dr. King said, I'm glad that Jesus said, 
love your enemy, not like your enemy. <laughs> because you don't have to like somebody to be concerned about his or her well-being. You may not like his personality or her personality, but you can be concerned that he has, has enough or, or she has enough to eat, clothing, and all the things that make life possible. Mm -hmm. So the difference between um, the, the nonviolence of King is that and he used the techniques of Gandhi and the spirit of Christ. He said that love was the most powerful force in the universe. He said we have a power that's greater than an atomic bomb. An atomic bomb can only destroy only love can change an enemy into a friend. Mm. I will tell you one more thing. Okay. May another. Um, we have in the United Nations Day of Peace, it's the 21st of September, and in Holland we have a whole week uh, of Peace Week, uh -huh. uh, celebrated in churches and city halls and universities, and there are flags up everywhere. And that's been going on for over 30 years here. Wow. Uh, uh, five years ago, there is a new UN Day. It's on the 16th of October, and it's called the United Nations Day of Living Together in Peace. Hmm. Living Together in Peace. And uh, this year there will be a, a three-day celebration in Geneva with uh, and the head of the United Nations will have the first speech and there will be workshops and the last uh, October, uh, sorry, last uh, April, uh, I was uh, appointed as the Netherlands uh, UN representative for the mm, nice. International Day of Living Together in Peace. Mm -hmm. So it's another day, you know, you can talk about peace on Christmas, you can talk about Easter, <laughs> you can talk it on, on the 21st of September, and you can also do it now on the 16th of, 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 uh, of We just have to add one in November, and then we've got a whole run for an entire quarter of the year. <laughs> yeah, precise. <laughs> That's a lovely note of levity to draw our conversation to a close on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you again for joining us. It's been a privilege and a pleasure. <laughs> okay. Thank you for having me on. It has been a privilege and a great honor. So exciting to all of you. Thank you. And to God bless you. God bless you in the faith 
that overcomes. Thank you. And the same to you. Okay. <laughs> if you have not yet registered and requested your ballot at votefromabroad.org, please do so. I'm Rachel Oyster with David Schellenberg in Ottawa, Canada. Thank you for listening to Democrats Abroad, the Blue Vote Cafe. Mm-hmm.